Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 14. Our text is Luke 14, 25 through 35. And uh, we're actually going to start reading at verse 15, I think. That sets the tone and attitude of this passage the way it ought to be. So we'll begin reading at verse 15 today. Luke 14, 15. Hear God's word when... Remember Jesus is eating at the Pharisee's house. So when one of those who reclined at table with him heard these words, he said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he, Jesus, said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time of the banquet, he sent his servants to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the Master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, sir, what you commanded has been done and still there is room And the master said to the servant, go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Now, great crowds accompanied him and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters. Yes, and even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000, and if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be Restored, It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. 
It is thrown away. He who has ears, let him hear. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. It's a hard word. We surrender our hearts to you. We ask you to do your work in our lives. We bless your name for Jesus, the true servant. Amen. So I remember being a middle schooler. I even remember being a middle schooler. And uh, it was probably the early 80s. Now I remember hearing this illustration at some youth conference. And it was an illustration about the commitment a disciple of Christ must have. And it really caught my attention as a middle schooler. I think I heard it more than once. I'm pretty sure a number of you have probably heard it as well. And I, I continue to think about it. I tracked down, I think, the source of that illustration this past week, and I believe it came from a sermon that Billy Graham preached in 1957 at the Urbana Conference. Urbana is, you know, the great, important, influential mission conference that InterVarsity puts on every few years. So back in 1957, so Billy Graham's preaching on on Christ's demand for total commitment to his world mission. Again, 1957, the U.S. is entrenched in the Cold War. Fear of communism is is rampant. It's on high level. And then Graham looks at this, you know, huge group of young people. And he says, the communists can teach the Christian church important lessons about commitment, lessons on self-denial, on discipline, on dedication and commitment. He didn't mean that they excelled the New Testament. In fact, communism is a, a twisting of New Testament teaching, but he said the church was ignoring the New Testament teaching, and so communism was teaching about commitment, and its teaching was coming at the church and challenging her. And so he He says this, I have in my hand a letter written by a communist student from an Eastern University in the US after he had gone to Mexico and become a communist. He wrote back to his fiance from Mexico, breaking off their engagement. And he said, here's in part what the letter says that I hold in my hand. The young man saying to his ex-fiance, saying, we communists have a high casualty rate. We're the ones who get shot and hung and tarred and feathered and jailed and slandered and ridiculed and fired from our jobs and in every way made as uncomfortable as possible. A certain percentage of us get killed or imprisoned. We live in virtual poverty. We turn back to the party every penny we make above what is absolutely necessary to keep us alive. We communists don't have the time or the money for for movies or or concerts or T-bone steaks or decent homes or new cars. We've been described as fanatics. Uh, We are fanatics. Our lives are dominated by one great overshadowing factor, the struggle for world communism. 
We communists have a philosophy of life which no amount of money could buy. We have a cause to fight for, a definite purpose in life. We subordinate our petty personal selves into a great movement of humanity. And if our personal lives seem hard or our egos appear to suffer through subordination to the party, then we are adequately compensated by the thought that each of us in a small way is contributing to something new and true and better for mankind. There is one thing in which I am dead earnest, and that is the communist cause. It is my life, my business, my religion, my hobby, my sweetheart, my wife, my mistress, my bread, my meat. I work at it in the daytime and dream of it at night. We hold on, its hold on me grows, not lessens as time goes on. Therefore, I cannot carry on a friendship, a love affair, or even a conversation without relating to this force which both drives and guides my life. I evaluate people, books, ideas, actions according to how they affect the communist cause and by their attitude toward it. I've already been in jail because of my ideas and if necessary, I'm ready to go before the firing squad. And then after reading the letter, Graham looks at this Urbana crowd and he says, I want to ask you, do you have that much dedication to the Lord Jesus Christ? And every time I ever heard that as a child, I said, I think so. I want to. I don't know. Like, I don't know. You see, Jesus' requirement on us is is nothing short of this. In fact, it's more. Like the heart is more. Uh, Jesus teaches us that his followers must give him the, the unambiguous, unqualified, undisputed, unrivaled first priority and chief love of our lives or... We're really not his disciples. Notice it said it three times. In fact, to get a sense of what our commitment to Jesus is to be like, Graham ended up saying, look, wherever it said communism in the letter, put Christ in the letter. So, so three points. Uh, the call we heed, the cost we count, and the calamity we avoid, the call we heed. Notice Jesus' audience has changed. Uh, 14, one through 24, he's at the home of a prominent Pharisee eating lunch. But we see in 14, 25 that he's now on the road again. We're in the journey section of Luke, and so Luke picks up the journey. He's continuing on to his goal, which is Jerusalem, which is his cross. And he's thronged by this great crowd, not just a a few around a table, but now this immense multitude of people. And these people are interested in him. They're fans and admirers. They're would-be followers of his. So he looks at this huge crowd and uh, like he doesn't congratulate them. He doesn't pump them up. He doesn't say things to, to please them. Like Jesus is not a good church growth strategist. He, he missed that lecture. 
Rather, he looks at this group and he says, if anyone comes to me and doesn't hate his father and mother, wife, children, it's a hard saying. It's what the first five words that I want to deal first, if anyone comes to me, if anyone comes to me. You see, coming to Jesus is a way of talking about faith. John 6.35 says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger. Whoever believes on me shall never thirst. Coming in faith. John 6.37, all the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. I will never cast you out. Just as faith is a gift of God, even so, coming to Jesus is a gift of God. We won't do it naturally. It's faith. And so now I want you to see that this this discipleship section flows out of the previous passage. Especially the parable of the great banquet, the master of the house prepares this lavish, delectable, aromatic, festive, beautifully decorated banquet. So much cost, so much attention, but those who should have accepted his generous invitation, they, they reject it outright with ridiculous excuses, like self-serving, self-interested, like myopic excuses, pretexts. So the master who is God sends out his servant who's Jesus. Read it with that in mind, and he sends him out to invite others, but these he has to bring in because they're the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. They're the beggars on the street. They're begging for bread. They have nothing, and so he has to bring them in because this group of people can't believe they'd be invited to a a gathering like that. It's too good for them to imagine. And so the servant does it and still there's space. So the master, God, sends his servant, Jesus, out to invite others. Not, now even further outside the city to the highways and the hedges, to the homeless, to the drifters, to the prostitutes, to the gypsies, tramps, and thieves, but these he has to compel to come in because even more than the first group, this group, even more than the beggars, they know themselves and what they've done, and they can't fathom this king would welcome them into, their, into his house to eat with him. Such is grace. And that pictures the gracious offer of the good news of God's great banquet. And Jesus is the servant who invites us. In verse 14 of that, no, not that verse. Verse 24, Jesus switches the image. It's now not the master's banquet, it's my banquet. That gets me. Because earlier he said it's all prepared. And we know what Jesus is getting at. Like, it's the wedding feast of the Lamb, and you know what? I'm the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Like, I am the feast. 
Drink my blood, eat my body, put your faith in me that you might be welcome into the feast. Like, you're a beggar, empty, I'm gonna fill it. You're a sinner, guilty, I'm gonna cover you with my blood. You were invited, I'm gonna bring you in and compel you to come in to be full and forgiven and free, and that's the good news. And that's what coming to Jesus is. That's the call of God to give that to us. It's receiving an invitation. It's believing on him. It's realizing today that your biggest need is that you are a sinner who needs such a savior. That you are needy and unworthy and hopeless in yourself. And that looking to Jesus and saying, Jesus is that perfect redeemer for such as me. And being astounded by such grace and then entering into the great banquet. And that entails leaving your old life behind. You are different. A new status, a new identity. You're different. And that leads to the next point, the the cost we count. For all of that, the cost we count, faith joins us to Jesus as a disciple. And a disciple is a learner, a follower. Saving faith changes our loyalties and our loves. It just has to do it because we attach ourselves to Jesus. Because we're enthralled by this, that which he has invited us into. And Jesus becomes our first priority and our first chief love. We never put our faith in Jesus as if we're going to put him into a compartment of our lives. Rather, by the nature of the case, he must take control of our Lives And this taps into what's so stirring about that great banquet parable, the excuses these misguided, myopic people present to such a master of the house. So again, when we come to Jesus, we have a new status. And I like thinking about it as one commentator says, it's like when an alien, you know, foreign citizen comes to the United States and he actually succeeds in getting to go through the naturalization process to become a U.S. citizen, he has to renounce his fundamental allegiance to his native land and swear an oath of loyalty to the United States. He can think fondly of his previous life and, and of his previous country, but this, there's a break. There's a fundamental shift in him. He's a U.S. citizen or... I've been thinking about this in light of what Billy Dempsey said at, at Nylon and William's wedding when he, you know, it's that moment when you, when you bring the couple up front and the pastor said to Nylon and William, he goes, from this point on, apart from your relationship with God, you become each other's first priority and every other relationship takes five steps back. There's a new status. So this new relationship we enter by faith necessarily entails this demoting or even this renouncing of previous first loyalties and first loves. And so Jesus fleshes that out in three areas. First, he says, uh, it's gonna be a demoting or de-renouncing in the area of relationships. In the area of relationships, he goes, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, hate, of course, doesn't mean loathe and detest. It doesn't mean that. It wouldn't fit in with Jesus' other teachings. He, he requires us to love even enemies. Um, 
It's a Jewish way, this hyperbolic way, this get your attention, arrest your heart way of saying to love less. The, the parallel is, is Matthew 10, 37, when he says, whoever loves these more than me, like there's no rival. So remember how Genesis says Jacob loved Rachel and hated Leah, but then goes on to say that he loved Leah less and she knew it. it it's speaking in an exaggerated way to dramatically mark the distinction. So in comparison to your love for Jesus, it's as if you hated all others. And to put your faith in Jesus means a break with the ultimate priority of your other relationships. And so if we dramatize that as a marriage service, us and Jesus, Reverend Dempsey would look at us and say something like this, from now on, all the relationships, even your marriages, even with your children, even with your parents, even with yourself, with a capital S, with that mix of wants and desires and cravings, you know, self-preservation that we have, all of that, from now on, these take a step a mile back. And, and there's, there's, there's no confusion about who's first. And, and the amazing thing, the miraculous thing, the counterintuitive thing is that when, when we do that, when Jesus is front and center first, far from hurting anyone, our fathers and our mothers and our wives and our husbands and our brothers and sisters and our children, far from hurting them at all, with Jesus in the center, it makes them flourish. In fact, we could say the, I love better in direct proportion to the depth of my love for Jesus. Can you imagine a wife hearing somebody say, submit to your husband, <laughs> and not hearing her say it in the Lord and knowing her husband <laughs> has to go, has to, lay, has to die for her in the Lord. Second, in the area of persecution, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So come to me stresses that entrance into relationship with Jesus. Come after me stresses that ongoing walk with Jesus. Jesus says a, a real disciple, which again is a learner, a follower, is one who bears his own cross and comes after him. And so where is Jesus going? He's, he's on the way to Jerusalem. It's very literal here. He's got a cross ahead of him and he's gonna actually literally bear it to Golgotha. So this doesn't exactly mean that we're gonna have hiccups and irritations and hardships in life that we need to bear with patience and grace. It's more than that, it's more specific. It's that, it's that like Jesus, when you sign on with Jesus, when you come to Jesus, you, you put on your shoulders the implement of your execution and you walk with Jesus to the place of execution. It's nothing short of saying, look, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I'm identifying with your suffering and death, like for your glory and for the good of others that need to see what a sacrificing savior looks like. Like I'm, I'm taking on your way of living because I'm attached to you. And so in some parts of the world, this is just open and obvious. And I, you know, martyrdom is more rampant in our world than it ever has been. It, it's shocking to us. And I just remember 
few years ago on the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church, we watched a video and I just couldn't get the image out of my mind of this guy who's the only job he could get in his native land somewhere in the Middle East was he has to be the guy who cleans the sewers. And so you have this picture of him like having to get down in the sewer and it was just so revolting, like revolting, but that's all he could get because of Christ in the land in which he lived. What does it look like for us? You know, young people, you, you feel it. Sometimes you feel it sharper as a young person. You, you have a sense that you don't belong, you get left out, you get excluded. Because of a clear commitment to Jesus, you're just not in the mix of what the current is like in your school. You know you don't fit, you don't belong, and, and you feel it sometimes. And because you're taking a stand for God's word, like you belong to him. And so our culture can look at us and say, well, you're narrow-minded, like, like get with the times, get, you're aggressive, you're subhuman. So in our, in, our, in our culture, it's matters of sexuality bring this to the fore. So Billy Graham back, back in 1957 says, we live in a sex-mad culture, 1957. Uh, a, a Nashville pastor shared about one Sunday, a young lady stopped him after church and, and said, can I, can I ask you a direct question? He goes, well, sure. She goes, you know, we don't live in a leave it to beaver world anymore. Like I have gay and straight friends, including many who are not married, who like to have sex, and we feel fine about it. In today's society, my friends and I are not alone. If, if churches want to stay relevant, if they want to reach the modern person, churches need to catch up with the world on the subject of sex. And the pastor goes, well, she never really got to the question. She walked away. We add to that all the obsession over sexual identity. Underneath that even, we could say this expressive individualism that we feel too that to be fully human, I have to express my strongest desires at the moment and be affirmed in that and celebrated in that. And there's a lot of potential for scorn and ridicule that our young people are going to feel, that they do feel, that we, that we encounter. And, and we, we say something that's so radical, revolutionary, cuts against every grain. We say, no, my body belongs to God. Because he redeemed me at such a cost. God gives me my identity. I've entered his family. And then we say, but I believe that a God who invites me to such a lavish banquet and prepares for that banquet through the sacrifice of his own beloved son, such a God must have my best interest at heart for my flourishing even when I don't understand it. Third in the area of possessions, down in verse 33. So therefore, any man of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. So I've shared with you, several of you, that I went to a monastery over my sabbatical for five days, and I was just struck by how often this verse got read in their public worship services. And you could just see it. You know, you could see these monks who just left, literally left everything and how much they cherished this verse. And it made a deeper impact on me. Is that what Jesus necessarily requires of us? I mean, all things are on the table. 
maybe in his leading of you, he requires of something as radical. What if God called us to a remote area of the world to proclaim Christ that would seriously affect our possessions? But the main idea is that we refuse to be attached to our possessions. They have an attaching energy force about them, but we refuse that. We cease, it ceases to be what we live for, and we are actually ready to be open-handed and give them away. We view our money and our resources as belonging to him. We use them to serve others, to help other beggars and other sinners into the banquet. That charges us up. We reflect God's great generosity in giving freely of our time and our treasure. And, and most of all, the pinnacle of this is that we truly regard Jesus as the pearl of great price, the treasure hidden in the field, our chief possession. We sing from our heart when I survey the wondrous cross where the whole realm of nature mine. That were a present far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. That really does flow up from our, our heart. So Jesus says to us, you're saved by coming to me with nothing. Yet, yet faith, by its very nature, joins you to me in an intimate relationship so that my way becomes your way, and you're, and you're never gonna be perfect. You're never gonna arrive. You're gonna wrestle, you're gonna struggle, you're gonna backtrack even. But this is the overall direction and orientation of your life. There's a, there's a, there's a break. And that's what a disciple entails. You cultivate this mindset, this single-mindedness, this focus on me. And this is what saving faith entails. And so have you counted the cost today? So Jesus gives two little illustrations really quickly. He gives an illustration of a guy who starts building a tower and maybe it's a watchtower you know, to protect his vineyard or maybe it's an outbuilding for his little farm. But like he starts building it and all of a sudden he gets to the point where he doesn't have enough money to finish it and he just has a foundation sitting there in his field and it just looks ridiculous and he gets kind of made fun of. And so before beginning his project, the man must sit down and calculate the full expense, the full cost, count the cost to complete it. And Jesus says, even so we must with Christ. Like Jesus doesn't hide the small print. Like he's not tricking anybody. This is what it costs. Or similarly, don't be like the king who when he becomes aware that another king, this enemy king is approaching him for war, he doesn't, he, he must first assess whether he can face that king who has 20,000 troops with his own army, which is only 10,000 troops. And if he can't figure out how to do it, then he has to send a delegation ahead of him and negotiate some kind of peace. And so if we relate those two together, the first, the builder like decides whether on his own to start a project, and in the second, like a decision is forced on the king by another. I like thinking about it, like the first is whether to ever enter into a relationship with Jesus. You know, you may be undecided right now. Well, just look here and make the decision. But the second is, having done so, are we gonna resist when the more powerful king moves in? And in the context, the more powerful king's gotta be Jesus. And he's gonna move in, and he's gonna show us ways that we resist him, 
And he's gonna present us with the opportunity, are you gonna stick with it? Or are you gonna submit to me? And let me take control of your life. And sometimes in our discipleship, he presses us and he appears like an enemy. Has Jesus ever appeared like an enemy to you? And he's commanded us a thing that goes against our comfort and our desires, but it's for our good. Finally, and briefly, the calamity we avoid. So Jesus closes exhortation to this great crowd of would-be followers and to us, and he says this, salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no, no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Salt that's lost its saltiness. It's an eerie statement. Can salt lose its saltiness? And, and really, literally it can't. But, but the salt here used in Palestine was gathered up from the Dead Sea and it was impure and the sodium chloride was mixed with other compounds. And so when you, you know, got that bulk of, of salt mixed with compounds, you stored it in your barn and if it got wet, then the sodium chloride would leach out first. So what remained was not salt at all. And so it wasn't useful for anything. You just threw it away, not for seasoning, not for, for preserving, not even for killing weeds in your soil or for slowing decomposition in a manure pile. It was useless and thrown out. So what's Jesus warning us about? Lawndale Presbyterian Church, this wonderful body of believers. Well, he's warning us about the danger of a would-be disciple never really responding in faith or of an apparent disciple who loses what seemed like a real commitment to him, like becomes unsalty. Like the devotion to him wanes. He no longer really lives for Jesus. He kind of goes through the motions. His first love, his chief loyalty is subtly, maybe imperceptibly shifted. And it's so easy. I've seen it happen in my life. He, he drifts into living a life with excuses and pretexts and becomes more adept at that. And such a person may end up revealing himself or herself never to have been a real disciple and missing the great banquet altogether. And it's a statement that we need, and that would be the ultimate calamity for each of us. Whatever hardship you think you've faced, it's nothing, nothing compared to this calamity. And so things we gotta think about is that we're going to be discipled by somebody. And we're either going to be discipled by sin and the devil or we're going to be discipled by Jesus through his word and spirit. N nobody is undiscipled. Also in life, we're going to pay a price. Everybody pays a price. Nobody gets off scot-free. We can pay the price of living in sin and losing ultimate happiness and entering into judgment or we pay the much lesser price of being united to Jesus in his way and actually sharing the sufferings of Christ and then entering with Jesus into Jesus's priceless paradise which he prepared for us. And in life, therefore, there's going to be an ultimate love. Each of us is after it. We have homing devices towards an ultimate love or we can say a great banquet. And we are always hearing Lady Folly and Lady Wisdom. 
And Lady Folly is inviting us to a banquet that appears good, but it's a banquet in the grave. It ends in dust. And we feel that too. Or we respond to Lady Wisdom's call to the great banquet prepared by Jesus himself in his own blood and righteousness, which is the one our hearts long for. Which banquet are you going after? It's kind of like C.S. Lewis's much quoted statement. He said, it will seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea, we are far too easily pleased. May we repent of being far too easily pleased. And Jesus says, look, come into my banquet. Don't let anything keep you out. Be aware of that. And so Billy Graham preached in 1957 and 1956, just several months before he preached. It was that great traumatic experience that everybody was thinking about in that sermon at Urbana at a missions conference because in that prior year, the five men were martyred in Ecuador by the Alka Indians. And they were trying to reach a lost Indian tribe. And it's on everybody's mind, 1956. And it was all through, after that happened, all through the media, they're saying it was a senseless death. What a waste of potential. These young men, well-connected, gifted. What a, what a waste. And yet... One of them, Jim Elliott, several years earlier while he was an undergraduate, like an undergraduate, was writing journals and he, he set the attitude of those men years before they ever went into the remote heart of Ecuador. He just said this much quoted statement, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And you see that's gospel truth. So again, in Billy Graham's words, do you have this kind of commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ? Do I have it? What's really first in our lives? It's a question we can't dare put off because it's already, it's prepared. And we know better. The lamb has been slain and has been raised from the dead and sits at God's right hand and looks at it and says, I want you here. I want you here with me in my great banquet. May it be so. Amen. Let's stand.